What did one ocean say to the other? What did one ocean say to the other? Nothing. They just waved. <laughs> I was like, ah, I was, I was you know? right there. I was right okay, there. Another one okay, give me the another second one. What do you think's faster, hot or cold? I don't know, hot. Hot, because you can always catch a cold. <laughs> so those are, my, those are my two dad jokes. My kids are going <laughs> to love these. Recruiters, the great ones you remember, and the bad ones make you want to control alt delete from your memory. What makes finding your next great hire easier than ordering on DoorDash? Is it just having a really good network, being an industry expert, or is it just having really, really bad dad jokes? Hey, I'm Lewis Barrel, host of the Startup Stack. I ask these questions and more on this week's episode with founder and CEO Jay Berard of global recruiting firm Jagger. A bartender turned founder, his firm has worked with world-renowned companies like TELUS and filled over 500 searches in just five years. We talk about the future of work, how to evaluate a search firm, and so much more. Let's get into it. I'd love to hear a little bit more about Jagger. Why don't you tell us about it? Sure. So um, Jagger is the company I started five years ago, and we brand ourselves as a modern headhunting firm really built for you know today's talent market, which, um, you know, the way that I describe that is just being uh, the type of firm that understands where talent is today and ultimately how they engage with with companies and, and, and new opportunities. I think, you know, we're on this kind of forefront uh, of, a, of a huge paradigm shift in the way that people work. And um, and so, you know, we work in all these different industries and, and all these different levels. And essentially, we help companies find the talent that's going to help them accomplish their goals. That's that's the, the reason we exist. And, you know, making the connections between, um, you know, the people that can help them get there. Now, tell me a little bit more about how you started Jagger. You know, I know that, at the, you know, at this point, you've, you know, you were telling me something like, You've placed over 500 candidates. You're, you know, you're doing 100 placements a year. You know, despite being a relatively small team, you're working all over the world. But you know, let's let's rewind. Let's go back. You know, five six years. How, how did you how did you get into recruiting? How did you start this firm? Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a great story. Actually, I'm from a place in Canada called Winnipeg, Manitoba, uh, which is a smaller city, and um, I was living in my parents' basement. And I chased a girl out to Vancouver um, who was going to fashion school there. I was always leaving. I was always going to the big city, whether that's Toronto or Vancouver in Canada. And so I I was a bartender essentially before then while I was in school. And then I had this app that I started called Posi, which um, was a positive social networking app in like 2012 or 2013, um, which kind of went like this and then kind of like started to fizzle out. And, um, you know, we decided to kind of shut it down after about 10 months um, so when I moved to Vancouver, I really didn't have that much experience. I had like the bartending resume with this little entrepreneurial venture and, you know, 23 years old, no idea how the world works. So, uh, I was like, I got to apply to jobs. And, you know, there was two jobs that I applied to. One was a director of people potential at Lululemon, which is their definition of like a director of human resources. They wanted okay. like 10 years of progressive experience in HR leadership, all this kind of stuff. So I, I sent my application in and I wrote them an email saying, like, I know people, I know potential, you know, I'm, I'm your guy. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't get the call back. So yeah. I went and interviewed at this, like, smaller um, recruiting firm in Vancouver. And, uh, you know, they had advertised quite a high, you know, compensation. So I was like, oh, I could be a consultant. That sounds sounds cool. 
So what it was, was essentially a boutique recruiting firm that said, yeah, you could make that much, but you know, it's a hundred percent commission. There's no draw. Um, you know, we'll train you, but, uh, you know, you know, just basically see what happens. And at the time, like I had a couple thousand dollars in savings, um, and I just moved from a really cheap and cost-effective city to one of the most expensive in Canada. And I kind of just had that naivete at the time to shrug my shoulders and say, I can make this work. And so I jumped right into it. And then from that point on, I just kind of learned the ins and outs in the space, started working in all these different industries. And within about a year's time, I was like the youngest person at that firm, but I was the top producer and um, just kind of, you know, saw a different way that we could do things. So when I started Jagger about a year later, it was like all of the emotional journey was already done. And now it was just about going on and doing it, doing it yourself. So you've got no recruiting experience. You're a bartender, right? Um, you get into recruiting, you find this firm, you, you know, a year later, turns out you're uh, pretty good at it, right? And then you're starting Jagger, you're starting your own firm. That's a big leap. What, what, what gave you the, what was the inspiration to do that? Part of it feels like there was just no other options. You know, I think uh, coming from like the bartending, you know what I mean? Like no experience being a bartender. I actually think that I had applied to a bartending gig as well to like maybe work Saturdays, you know, hundred percent commission job, have something for Saturdays just to kind of keep you afloat. And I never actually ended up getting the job for the bartending gig. And the reason that's important to share is because I think if I got that job after three months of not making a dollar and not really, you know, knowing what the future holds and maybe having to call home and move back to Winnipeg, um, I probably would have started taking more shifts. I probably would have started to, you know, take the Thursday shift and the Friday shift. And, and then what would have happened was I would have been like, well, clearly this, you know, recruiting thing isn't really for me. And I probably would have went back and I might still be bartending today, you know? Um, so part of it came from just like actually having no other options and, and learning the hard way and, um, just kind of running in the best thing that ever happened to you was the, the, the bartending job and the Lululemon job then never materialized. Exactly. The real reason that I've been able to catapult, I think in the recruiting space is because like my initial experience is really rooted in pain. So like the first, first recruiting engagement I had, I had this insurance company that needed an underwriter. And went through the whole process, younger guy, great guy. He was like, I'm going to buy you a beer when this is all done. This is amazing. And I'm trying to experience this whole thing from start to finish. So I've got this candidate who's seemingly good. I have no idea what I'm doing. The client, I have the CEO and the COO as the, as the direct client. They don't know that I'm 23, that this is my first search. You know what I mean? Um, and I'm getting excited by this whole experience. And then they make an offer. The offer was $10,000 more than he was currently making. And it was an extra week of vacation. But so we go the whole process and I'm just hoping for this placement because I actually, I actually need it to happen. And the candidate had led me to believe that, you know, this was a, a sure thing. But when the offer came, he got cold feet and he decided not to take it. I decided to stay put. So that was really painful. And then the second thing that I happened, which I, um, you know, really... This is something that sticks with me even more. So now it's been three months. I really need this one to go through. It was an engineering job for one of the biggest uh, breweries. That's what I'll say. One of the biggest beer companies in the world. Go the whole process, same thing. You know, clients excited, candidates excited. I'm ready to go. And we're uh, doing the offer. And the candidate goes, I should let you know that I'm not a permanent resident or citizen of Canada, right? And the company 
has a policy that they, at the time that they could only hire people who had at least a permanent residency or a citizenship. And I was never trained to ask that question. That's, that's a little of the training that was involved. So I went this whole way again and made an offer and then that it couldn't happen because the, the person didn't have the proper documentation. So imagine the client call that I had with that person and how disappointed they were. And so when you, I managed to salvage that relationship and that exact client was who I did two placements with the first day, which kind of brought me back above flow. So in short, those, those experiences make you not make those same mistakes again. The third ever position I made in recruiting was a CFO. I have no business at 23 years old placing a CFO role where they already had an executive retained search firm on it, but I got the CEO on the line and he let us, he let us have an opportunity and a chance. So, so you're out there learning the ropes and it sounds like, you know, you know, you're making mistakes, but you're hustling, right? So you're, you're, you're getting through it, but then you go start your own firm. How, how does that, why, why didn't you stay at the, you know, with the guys who originally hired you, you know, why did you go out on your own? The, see, the thing about recruiting is, you know, if you're, if you can manage the whole process yourself, you are the you are the value. Like you, the individual recruiter, are the value. And so a company has to recognize that, and a company has to recognize that if they're going to retain great recruiters and agencies. For me, I kind of realized that my value was bigger than what I was being provided. And since I had just gone through this entire year and a half of just this very, very, very real entrepreneurial experience, I just went, oh, I'll just go do this on my own. So when I started Jagger, it was like a little bit nerve wracking, obviously, because you know, you don't know how it's going to be perceived. You know, I'm calling out of my condo. Um, I'm a, I'm a one or two person shop because a, a friend joined me for a little bit. Um, and the first company that we brought on was actually TELUS. And they're like one of the largest employers in Canada. You know, they didn't. And tell me more about that. Yeah. I, you know, it's always fascinating to hear about, you know, when people first start firms, how they, how they acquire those first clients. Yeah. You know, a lot of times, it's, well, you know, I've got a pretty big Rolodex. I've been in this industry a long time, but that's not the case for yeah. you. So, how, you know, how did you get, how did you get TELUS? How did you get some of those other first So clients? it's always about like the cold outreach, right? So you're always kind of reaching out and no one really knows who you are. And at the time we, we didn't even have a website. We just had like a one, not even a one pager. It was literally just fits in the frame of your computer that says Jagger, you know, I think it was just recruiting agency. That's it. And a little contact email. So and I think that in that case, it was just either being in the right place at the right time, right? So your, your, your outreach activity is frequent. You're making 100 calls a day. You're sending follow-up emails. You're trying to see if somebody has a problem that you can solve. And I think what tell us what happened was it just so happened that, you know, we hit a pain point on the reach out specifically about, I think it was a director of people role um, that, uh, that they were having a challenge with. And so that's the engagement that we got because, you know, right place, right time, reached out to the right person at TELUS. And once we had them, so half the battle is actually getting the right person. And then the other half is once you have them on, um, on the line to be compelling enough to give them a, to give them a reason to say yes to you. And so for me, it was, you know, we actually just started our, our own firm. This was my experience in the past. Here's what we can do to help you. And I just want to be, I was fully transparent. I'm like, I want to be transparent with you. This will be a hundred percent fill because you're the only firm I'm going to be working with on this one. We don't have any other clients right now. So, you know, rest assured that, you know, we're going to do the right thing. And, and we ended up being successful in placing that role. And, and tell me some about 
What were some of the other challenges you faced when you first started Jagger? When I first started Jagger, the biggest challenge that I had to overcome was was really that self-doubt factor, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have the office. We don't have the clout. We don't have any clients on a website because we haven't had any clients yet. So when I'm reaching out and, you know, recruitment's the most saturated B2B sale in the world. Like it's a low barrier to entry. There's a lot of recruiters um, and uh, they're all kind of saying a variation of the same thing. So I had a lot of self-doubt at first that I had to overcome, which was when you, when you allow that self-doubt to creep in, you don't make the call. You don't send the email, you know, you don't. This is really common with startup founders as well. We call it imposter syndrome. Yeah. Right. And, and how you, how you get over that is, is one of the biggest challenges. You know, I think where where I found some early wins was really just taking the wins that you could get, you know, like taking whoever, not having any sort of um, barrier on your own side of like what type of companies you're willing to work with. So right at the onset of, of uh, you know, that telesearch, we had this other client that we brought on, which was this um, distributor of plumbing supplies, four-person company. Um, the owner had a posting with another agency. And, and so we reached out and we noticed that uh, they were looking and, you know, they weren't really finding success because it was a tough role. The salary wasn't that high. And, um, you know, typically what will happen when we when we get a search is we'll, you know, we'll reach out, we'll call people to their place of work, we'll reach out on LinkedIn, what have you. This role was really challenging. And, and um, the guy that was working with me at the time went on Facebook and he shared, hey, looking for an account manager, blah, blah, blah. And somebody who was a friend tagged a guy. That guy was in Vancouver for two weeks. He was a Red Seal plumber, I think, or a a tin basher, turned sales guy looking to move to Vancouver, but he was just there visiting. So we reach out to the guy, we connect with him, doesn't have a resume. He uh, is there for two weeks, doesn't have a car. Um, we think he's the guy. So we we create a resume for him on the spot. We share it with the owner. The owner is interested. So the guy needs to go to the interview. I pick him up in my car. You know, you can do these <laughs> things when you're really when you're really small and you have the time. I go to his his place that he's visiting, pick him up in the car, I drive him to Burnaby, I sit in the parking lot for about an hour and a half, okay? Mm-hmm. Waiting for the guy to finish his interview. He comes out of the interview, hops back in the car, I drop off. Client's yeah. in love with the guy, thinks he's amazing. And um Vancouver, sure. Vancouver has no Uber at the time, right? Exactly. No, no Uber. Cabs are a nightmare. Anyways, so the, the client wants to make an offer to them. We then bring the guy for lunch in the briefcase, pull it out. We got an offer. He takes it. He's moving to Vancouver next month. He's pumped. That guy's still there. He's yeah. still there five years later. And I love stories like that. I've got yeah. a um, one of the first people I ever hired was kind of similar where kind of sent me this message on on Twitter. It intrigued me. You know, he was asked for coffee. And so I said, sh- you know, sure, I'll, I'll meet up for coffee. And he's like, you know, I was like, how about Wednesday? And what I didn't know at the time was this guy was on the other side of the country. He's in Chicago. He was, he was just hustling, right? And he just booked his flight, came right out, right? Met me for coffee on Wednesday. And yeah, it was one of the first people I ever hired. You know, it was great. Not so much. Those those are the kind of stories where, you know, I, I'm always chasing serendipity. I think that's like, if you can have those moments, you know, when you look back on, like those are, those are the best moments that, that, you, that you really cherish. Do you like our show? I do too. If you want to support the Startup Stack, the best way to do that is by subscribing and rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. 
Also, send dad jokes, or if you have them, actual good jokes, to podcast at rocketplace.com. Feel free to send us feedback there too. Okay, so we're talking about some of these challenges, the imposter syndrome, you know, doing the hard things, doing the hustle, getting out, you know, driving the guy out to Burnaby and sitting in your car. When did it flip? When did you know, you know what, I'm onto something, this is going to work? So it was actually like fairly early on, I would say about six months in. Six months in, I kind of came to this realization that the buddy that joined me, like it wasn't really working out, you know? So that was a, a kind of rip the bandaid scenario. And I think it was, you know, mutually aligned. So now I'm sitting by myself, truly by myself, but I'm, I've built a little, bit, a little bit of momentum up. I've got a bunch of clients now, different searches, different areas, and then things really started to roll. So, you know, we're making multiple placements here, there in the US, Canada, and that goes on for a little while. I moved from Vancouver to Toronto um, in that time span, which was about a year in. And there's just a lot of momentum coming up. So all those initial efforts where you're reaching out and saying, love to work with you, all that kind of stuff, the follow-up, the follow-up, the follow-up, it really builds that momentum. And I think momentum's so underrated in business. You know, as soon as you start to feel that momentum, like that's really your time to just capitalize on it. So we started to expand and started to bring on way more searches um, that I could even handle. So I had, you know, the, the first hire within the business, which was, again, an old colleague who came and uh, joined SHIP. And she was amazing. Um, and, you know, we just started like, we, we just really started making, you know, multiple five, six placements a month consistently. And it's just me and this other person in the business. So we started to, you know, get more flushed with cash, which, you know, alleviated some of the lifestyle anxieties that sometimes happens when you have the business, right? Because you have the business to take care of. But then you also, if you're a sole founder with no investors, I didn't really take on any debt or anything like that. I would say probably about the first Within the first year, we started to build a lot of momentum. So then we started to bring on, I started to go for a next challenge, which was to start bringing on more people within the company. I'd love to maybe get some some advice from you. For all the entrepreneurs out there um, that might be thinking about hiring a recruiter, um, or maybe not, you know, just working at any company thinking about hiring a recruiter, when's the, when's the right time to hire a firm like Jagger and how should they be thinking about which type of recruiting firm to work with? For for any entrepreneurs or for any company really that's thinking about recruiting, I think the most valuable thing you can do is actually look at your internal network first. Maybe there's people within your organization or within your network that know somebody that's really great because they might already have, you know, an idea of your personality and like, you know, what might work with you or 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 maybe what wouldn't work. And that's always super valuable. And I always think companies should try to fill any kind of positions internally first before engaging an agency, because it is also the most cost-effective way as well. Um, however, you know, you also want to make sure that you're maximizing your resources. So if you are finding that you just haven't quite built the pipeline, or if you feel like you're just not seeing the right person, at that point, you should absolutely get an external recruiter involved who might be able to just bring you a different look because they're going to have a different approach to how they actually go to market. Um, and so when you're evaluating a recruiting partner, there's really three things that come to mind about what you should be asking and what you should be thinking about when you're, you know, evaluating that person. Number one, first and foremost, which I think gets overlooked is how is this person going to represent my company in the market, in this market full of strangers? So when I'm maybe pitching on how Jagger is, 
the other, the person on the other line should be, you know, assessing my own communication skills. They should be assessing how I communicate and how polished I am. Because ultimately when I'm in the market recruiting, I need to get candidates excited about your company. And that's super critical. So many people, they just, they think recruiting is just, you go on LinkedIn and you, you search keywords and you, you say, this is the person. And then that's it. You need to be able to be very compelling because especially when you're hiring really in-demand talent, they're getting reached out to all the time. Um, so knowing who, uh, so yeah, number one would be, you know, really assessing the person and how they're going to represent your firm. Number two is, you know, we always get asked this, like, what's your specialty, you know, or, or, and, and again, that's important because you want to make sure that the person actually understands the role. If you tell me that you're looking for a software developer with JavaScript experience and I say, no problem, and I send you a bunch of Java developers, well, we've just wasted a lot of time. And, you know, that's not, you know what I mean? That's that's not going to be valuable to anyone. You've done, you know, you've done hundreds of searches from, I mean, I don't know, plumbing sales and <laughs> and beer companies to software developers. I mean, how how do you develop expertise in such a breadth of of industries and roles? So my my core philosophy and theory that that we work off of at Jagger is, you know, our clients are always going to be the experts in what they need and the candidates are always going to be the experts in what they do. So if we're going to be the most value-add third party to both of those, and if we're going to be able to connect the dots effectively, we have to understand that our expertise is actually our ability to connect experts. So, you know, you get you get to learn on the spot with every candidate that you speak to with all the roles that you work on. But I'm, I don't believe in pitching someone that I'm an expert in, you know, finance and accounting roles, because I don't actually think that's true. But right now, I'm working on a vice president of finance uh, role for an e-commerce client, and I'm working on a controller role for a publicly traded company. So what I'm trying to do in that, in, in those roles is I try to understand how the client defines the controller within that organization, right? The must-haves, the key experiences. I try to understand, you know, what personalities have worked in that culture, what the culture is really all about. I'm breaking it down on those three things. And then I'm going to market and I'm reaching out to the people with our sort of secret sauce and methodology of how we reach out. But once I'm determining if the person's a good fit or not, I'm really just connecting the dots. I'm, I'm asking the right questions. I'm coming into everything with a curious mind. And as a result, you know, if the bells go off in recruiting, like the intuitive bells, you're, you're, you're usually right. So I think developing expertise, don't get me wrong. If all you did was work on, you know, software developer roles all day, you know, you might start to think you should be a software developer yourself because, you know, they get paid a lot of Get a lot of dough. I actually think being a generalist is, is, is an advantage in this market. You know, I think the third thing that you should really find out is diving a little bit deeper on their approach. But again, how quickly are you going to turn around qualified candidates? Because at the end of the day, if you're going to the agency route, you're either on a role that's super critical um, for the organization. You, it, you've looked already. So now you're getting into a bit of a time crunch or you're already in a time crunch, maybe someone left the organization, all that kind of stuff. So if an agency answers that, you know, they're going to do this whole breakdown and they'll get back to you in two weeks and all that kind of stuff, like that's that's too long of a time. You know, our typical turnaround time for um, searches that we get engaged on is, you know, around three days for the first round of candidates starting from scratch. Um, 
And so I think just understanding someone's process and how quickly they can turn things around for you is, is super critical. Sometimes people will ask a question like, what's your, what's your time to fill? Um, what's your success ratio, you know, placement ratio, all those kind of stuff. And those are good metrics to understand, but in recruitment, especially contingency recruitment, a lot of those factors depend on the client themselves. So, you know, for example, if a client says, Hey Jay, we have this search, you know, we're not working on it. We have no other agencies on it. You're the only firm on it. This is what we need. You know, our, our fill ratio is probably over 95% in that case. You know, I advise a lot of entrepreneurs. One of the, one of the biggest reasons I advise them to hire recruiting firms is that there, and there are, there are a bunch of reasons, but one of the big reasons is, well, it'll help you move more quickly, right? If you think about the time to hire for this role, you know, if you're the CEO, you've got a million things to do. You're, even just if you, we broke down what it would take to recruit this person, that's going to take a, another million sub things. You know, sure, I'm not saying you can't do it, but it's going to take you months and months, right? Versus if you have someone dedicated on it, it's going to massively accelerate that time to hire. But how do you think about that? Like, what is the average time to hire for a search you're on? People drastically underestimate how time-consuming recruiting is. <laughs> a lot of people think they can do it. But, you know, for example, a CEO's time is incredibly valuable. They shouldn't be spending that much time on actual the ins and outs of recruiting, even though it's they always have to be in some sense. Time, the, the average time, a, a very seamless search is three weeks, start to finish. You know, and, and so that's a seamless search depending on the level, because if you think about it, let's say we got engaged on Monday. Let's say we brought candidates on Thursday. Out of those three to five candidates, there's three rock stars in there. Three awesome candidates that you're super excited about. You have a pipeline. Remember, the search is going to continue to go in the background. Now, especially I'm thinking about developers in this market. It's just like every single person's hiring developers right now. Let's say you have one interview, two interviews, a coding challenge, and a final panel, right? If you can get that done in a three to four week period with your internal schedules, that's a very straightforward, seamless recruiting process. But a lot of times you can't because you have to you have to you know coordinate internal schedules. This person's not available till Thursday or the following week and things like that. So I would say the average is more like five to six weeks for most roles. Um, and sometimes they drag on way longer. They can drag on months. Um, when someone's like, oh, well, how long should I recruit for? Like, what should, what should my expectations be about hiring? It really just depends on the candidate pool that you have. If you have a hire in your pipeline, like if you if this person's been introduced to your organization and you want to interview them and all that kind of stuff, they shouldn't be in your pipeline for more than five weeks. Because think about like every week that goes by in a pipeline for five weeks, chances are as soon as you entertain one opportunity, you're going to entertain another. And um, you know, you want to build momentum in the recruiting process. So you want to have a step scheduled with someone. And then, you know, as soon as that first interview is done, if you're interested in them, you want to have that second step scheduled right away. You want to build the momentum so that that candidate is getting excited about the opportunity, kind of leading up to the offer. And sometimes, you know, there's an internal thing. It, 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 it goes dark for two weeks and it almost always falls apart. Another big topic is around compensation. You know, what are, one, I'd love to understand how you how you advise your your clients around compensation, but also what are the different compensation models you're seeing out there, and and are there big differences between Canada, the U.S., other countries? There's two challenges that usually come up with comp when they go to market and they might not be 
maybe they haven't gone to market for this role in like five years. So um, actually this is happening right now with a client of mine. So they um, want to hire a sales manager and the sales manager comp that they have is, is one, the base salary is lower than market, but there's really not that much upside. It's a smaller organization, you know, let's say it's a 90K base with a 20K bonus. A lot of sales managers, they might be at a 90K base or 100K base, but they're also at a, you know, 90K, 100K bonus. So that poses a challenge because, you know, you have to then kind of work within those parameters and you really are only going to see the talent that fits that mold, not necessarily the talent that's really going to help your business. So sometimes I advise on comp, like, you know, as much flexibility as possible, um, because you might think that your role internally is $70,000, but if you're looking for that skill set elsewhere, maybe they're already at 70,000 and they need at least 75 to 80 to consider it, which automatically puts your range up. So, you know, sometimes you get pushed up when you're doing the recruiting that we're doing, which is, you know, maybe pulling someone from somewhere else. And then the, on, on the flip side of that, you know, some companies that have incredible compensation plans, I mean, yeah, they get way more interest just based on a pure comp perspective. The, 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 the things that candidates care about right off the bat are who's the company, what's the comp, what's the location, and then we can dive into the specifics of really what the role is, you know? Get those three salient details out of the way. Comp models, you know, again, you see more, we've seen obviously way more uh, ESOP plans and, and equity plans, uh, just given the amount of startups that you know, have continued to start up. And Canada's startup uh, ecosystem has really grown over the last, let's say, let's say five to seven years, five to 10 years. Um, and so, you know, it's almost an expectation with, with, you know, especially early stage startups that there would be some sort of an equity component in it. Um, and, but, but I would say there's, it's still pretty standardized, right? Like there's always going to be a base salary. Usually people will be wondering if there's a bonus. And then if there is any equity stock options or RSUs, you know, full benefits. You know, we're in spring of 2021 now, or maybe end of winter. Um, and you know, the vaccine is also getting out there. I, you know, I'm also wondering, are we going to see a resurgence in office culture? I actually just have, a had a, um, a startup founder email me today telling me he was looking for office space in San Francisco. This is the first person who said that to me like a year. Right. And, but you know, I am, it, it's an interesting idea because We've been we've all been home for a long time, and um, you know I could see something coming up in a recruiting process where people are like, actually maybe they want to go back to the office, right? It's like the opposite. I don't want to hear about your work from home plan. I want to hear about your get back to the office plan. I I, I got to get out of here, right? Well, I can I can jump on that point from like what I've noticed from just like speaking to people and like obviously we work with like hundreds of companies. So you can always, you always can kind of see what they're doing and what they're up to. So like a year ago, sometimes candidates would ask, like this is pre COVID, like, so like a year and two months ago, um, sometimes candidates would ask like, Oh, are they like, is there flex work at all? Like, could I work from home on like the odd Friday, you know? And some companies were like, yeah, we're totally flex. You know, you start to see a little bit of that change, that paradigm shift, um, as where the future of work might be headed. And then some companies are like, no, we, we don't do any of that. We don't believe in it. Like it's in the office, eight to five, like nothing. So now just one year later, yeah, the, the main question is going to be, you know, what is, what is the working structure? So is it, 
And I think you're right. I, I don't think people will be as interested. There will be always some, but people won't be as interested as like a pure remote. Um, but they also equally won't be interested as a pure in-office, I think. I think a hybrid model is just going to be the standard. And that the power of that used to be in the company. Like the, the power of those decisions used to be on the company side where they could say, hey, FlexWorks a benefit. But now the power in that is in the candidate side. Because if you're not willing to be flexible in the new paradigm shift, chances are I'm not going to be interested in joining your company because, you know, in the in in a in the aerospace industry or call any industry, if nine out of the ten other companies are doing something that's a little bit more uh, aligned to how I want to work, you know, I'm not going to choose the one that's not just to join this company. That's why that's how I actually think is going to happen. Yeah, and you know, and it, it, one of the other interesting challenges here is when you used to interview with a company, you know, you'd go into the office to meet people, but just being in the office for the interviews you'd start to get a sense of the company culture, the energy, the vibe. Um, now, like if you're interviewing right now, everyone is primarily remote. So you're kind of getting that energy, that vibe through, you know, the you know video calls, Zoom, et cetera, right? But there might be some sort of six months from now, 12 months from now, we might be back in the office, right? And But you've never experienced what that's like. And so... Trying, you know, it, it it is an interesting time to be recruiting because you're trying to, um, you know, how do you portray that company culture in a kind of video first world? The way that you assess, obviously, you know, the culture fit is is similar to the questions that you would ask in a regular setting, um, and just trying to get a feel for like the personality, you know, why they're interested in your business, what they're looking for in the next step how maybe, you know, what their career goals align with maybe what you have as an opportunity for their long-term growth, all that kind of stuff. Um, but chances are like, you're going to interview them on video and they're probably going to be a video for another six months, six to 12 months. Last year, you know, I think recruiting really just fell off a cliff in March and March to probably like, maybe like the summer. And a lot of people who would have made their, their move last year decided not to given the uncertainty. And I would say ever since you know, August, September last year, the recruiting market's been busier than what feels like ever. And I feel like this year, especially like some people that either are waiting on that year end bonus, we're closer to a vaccine, are just going to see a lot more movement going back to the office, right? There's going to be a lot of movement there. If I don't agree with your policies, I might be out. If I don't like Michelle down in that office or, or John in that office, I might not feel the same, um, the same way about the company I'm working for. Yeah, and, and we're into 2021 now. You know, we've been we've been dealing with this pandemic for a year, right? What what are the things that you're seeing this year? What's the new trend? You know, not the yeah, we all know about remote work and hybrid work, but what are you seeing right now that is 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 actually changing that's different? I mean, like one thing I imagine for you that really must be happening is maybe like like. Are you, has the talent pool just exploded, right? And what I mean by that is, you know, you used to find a company in one location, you had to find people in that location. But now, are you just fishing in massive pools, you know, all over the country or all over the world even um, for potential candidates? One of the things that I think will happen, I'm hopeful happens. I don't know the, the true logistics of ins and outs of it, but... So for example, I'm working with this company in uh, in my hometown of Winnipeg called Calia Flowers. They're great e-commerce. 
a flower delivery company. And for the longest time, you know, they've had everyone in Winnipeg. And so Catherine, the founder there, needed somebody to lead the marketing efforts. And with marketing talent in Canada, there's a lot of great talent in Vancouver and Toronto. And so she actually made her first remote hire through us um, about three or four months ago. And uh, it's working out fantastically. She she actually loves it so much more that this person's remote because it just, it provo- the way that it's working is so great that now we're helping her with a, um, you know, the, the director of finance role. And she's the same thing. She's like, I actually don't want them to be in Winnipeg. I'd like this person to be remote. So yeah, I think people have cast, have completely opened up their talent pools. And um, what that does for us is, you know, we have to search really everywhere. Yeah. And, what and I is, think that, might, is that like, does that make sourcing easier or does it make it much more challenging? No, much more challenging because um, the best way to do, to, the best way to do like search, like it's literally like a search and rescue. So if you need someone in a city or like a remote location, like a smaller town or something like that, the best thing that you could do is just like, make sure that that entire area is completely tapped out before you move on. Because those are like the obvious wins. People that are in your backyard, they they can come to the office. They don't have to relocate. All the other things that go into it. But now it's like, yeah, if, like just take this for an example. I would have looked in Winnipeg for a director of finance around the same type of company. It would have been a pretty quick search to completely be probably tapped out of the Winnipeg market. But now I'm Canada-wide. <laughs> I'm going through way more profiles, way more conversations. Um, so on one hand, there's a benefit because it gives the company more opportunities. But on the... I guess the downside of that is you just, yeah, there's just way more people. My, my bold Do you think this has been oh. a benefit from a, from a candidate perspective? Has Well, actually, let me ask this question a little bit differently. Now that we're doing Canada-wide searches, U.S.-wide searches, right, these giant talent pools, does that benefit the company more or does it benefit the candidate more? I think it benefits the candidate more. And the reason I say that is... Um, well, again, another story. We just had a breakdown call with a company in Atlanta that really wants to hire in Atlanta. And uh, because when they come back to office, that team's going to be centralized in Atlanta, right? And they want to hire like team leads and like DevOps engineers, like really tough to fill roles. But all the people that are in Atlanta right now, including everywhere else in the US, are being reached out to from companies that aren't in their geographical area, might not even be in the same country coming at them with multiple opportunities. So I think from a candidate perspective, you almost feel like, well, I can be based in Seattle now and I know that there's going to be opportunities in Miami for this company or that company because they're willing to hire remotely. And so I think it actually benefits the candidate because, you know, they end up feeling like they're in more of a confident position to really only engage with companies that they are really, really interested in because they're just getting reached out to with more and more opportunities. Right. So basically, candidates were already in high demand. And now they're like, the demand has gone through the roof. Further to that, if you're like, again, I'll I'll use, it doesn't matter what Canada or US, but like, if you are a software, I keep coming back to software engineers and developers, because like, they're so in demand. But if you're used to working in like a smaller market that has that's been always used to like a certain salary range, well, now you're getting reached out to from some of the bigger markets. And if they decide to keep their salary range, like internal equity across the board, you might get a substantial raise just from being in Winnipeg and taking a Toronto, you know, um, yeah. taking a job with a Toronto-based company. So that's another benefit that goes to the candidate, I think, um, for those high-demand roles. You were you were about to make a bold prediction uh, a minute ago, and I interrupted you. So I really don't know how this would 
actually work in the the full logistics side of it. But I just think like the bold prediction is like the borders are gone when it comes to hiring. Right now, like you can pretty much, there's actually a, you might be familiar with them. There's a company called Deal. I I know the founders well. I'm an investor in that company. Okay. So I, when I first discovered Deal, I'm like, this is brilliant. This is exactly like one of the problems that I, like I I just knew was, was something that needed to be solved. Um, And they're, they're at the forefront of, I think a big, a big change, which is, you know, I can hire across Canada, no problem. But as soon as I want to hire in the US, I either hire them remotely in the US and I, you know, maybe have to create a US entity or what have you. But if I ever want them to relocate to Canada, it's a, it's a, a, a it can be a nightmare of a process unless they, they fall under one of our, you know, specialized categories. If I have to actually sponsor like a US person through the LMIA and all that kind of stuff, there's just a lot of admin that goes into it. And then I have to physically relocate them. But if you're willing to hire remotely and you can do so, within the structures and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I think the border, the border kind of gets eliminated. So Canadian companies look more in the U S U S companies look more in Canada, but they don't actually have to relocate them. They can just hire them remotely, which changes um, the whole immigration process. So last question for you, if you could go back in time five years and give yourself some advice before you started Jagger, what'd be the advice you'd give to yourself? Like just go, you know, you don't have to, you just be present, be where your feet are, um, believe in yourself and um, continue to push yourself as well. Jay, thank you so much for joining us today on, on today's uh, Startup Stack. It was awesome learning about more about your career and your history, all the advice and learning more about Jagger. Thank you. Thanks for having me. For more on our conversation today, visit www.rocketplace.com slash podcast. We upload a new episode every week. So if you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to The Startup Stack in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to them. Thanks again for joining us. See you next week. The Startup Stack, written and edited by Hannah Levy, produced by Leah Jackson.